the card I would probably design is an older version of Redacted from playtesting, which was Ooh. whenever you Redacted. Redacted. Or actually it was Redacted. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. It was so much fun. And it was like while we were all trying to figure out how Redacted ever worked with the new Redacted. And it was just like, wait, you just like it was like the redacted in a lot of cases, yeah. but it would also be like, oh, I redacted. That gave me the redacted. I needed to go into redacted remote that has like oh, redacted on it. And it was <laughs> so sick. And then I was like, oh, wait, but I don't think an redacted can literally ever redacted this because you yeah. run redacted and then redacted, redacted. And it's yeah. like, oh, okay, that's <laughs> at first, wasn't it whenever redacted? Oh, no, it was or, whenever or was up it? until the point where we redacted, I think. You would redacted. Redacted. Just, and then you, you get two more redacted. Yeah. For yep. free in the same turn. It was just like, it was the most mm-hmm. convoluted thing. It also had the text redacted, redacted, redacted. And it was a redacted. God. So you would redacted, redacted, you redacted, and then you redacted, and you redacted. And it was like, oh my uh, God. it was That's wildly disgusting. fun. It was so fun. It's absolutely disgusting. We've tried out the, the quote unquote redacted. It has issues, but like, with that redacted it might be enough right like yeah this this, would be a literal competitive redacted yes yeah yeah like (laughs) like decks would have to run redacted just to have it in you would redacted back redacted right before the redacted (laughs) yeah Yeah. i was like oh i maybe i am actually a combo player and then we got to testing the redacted and there was a redacted we figured out that there was a card that we then had to change was a redacted redacted that let us redacted i think it was i'm gonna say ballpark at low 15 redacted turn four excuse me um <laughs> it was redacted sometimes if you wanted to play a little more cautiously excuse um, me <laughs> it was so much fun i played it three times and then the dev team said redacted 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 Redacted, redacted. We have all the testing info we need. Hello, and welcome back to the Slums Cast. I'm your co-host, Nora Panzer, and I'm a noted proponent of triple-sided Swiss. And I'm Orbital Tangent, a.k.a. Josh, still Netrunner's okayest player. Still holding that down. We still have that title to our name. If this is your first time on the Slumscast, I have an important message for you. That message is Slumscast is a podcast about genuinely trying, but spectacularly failing to be good at Netrunner. It will not make you better at Netrunner, and it also will not make you a better person. Could make you okay at both. Oh, shit. We haven't considered the group of people that are bad at both. I guess that would actually be making them better at both. Let's move on. We are joined today by a special guest. Josh, do you want to introduce our special guest today? Oh, absolutely. It's the master of the single-sided Swiss, the runner of several startup tournaments at this point. I think the only runner of major startup tournaments. It is Yesengren. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for the intro and landing the name perfectly. It's definitely yes. one that I probably would have reconsidered if I thought I was going to start making a lot of Netrunner content. We'll get into that in a second, actually. Thank you for joining us. We're happy to have you here, and I am happy that we've passed that first test because, as we know, <laughs> it is impossible to edit audio on the Slumscast. So if we had fucked that up, it would have just been there forever. 
You know, it's etched in stone. Might as well be handed down from the gods themselves. <laughs> I would say overall, we're grilled to have you here. Thanks. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. What's wrong, Josh? Well, I guess it's time for something. I guess you picked up on that very subtle pun, uh, grilled to have you here. It is, in fact, time for the beef zone. The beef zone. The beef zone, as always, is the first thing that we do every episode. We start off in the beef zone by asking a simple question. Who would win in a fight? This week, what we're talking about is who would win in a fight? Usernames that are allusions to a piece of fiction or usernames that are allusions to neutral 4-2 agendas? Okay, who's starting us off? I think I'm going to take the anti-myself position here. Oh, shit. I think clever card name puns as username titles, the way you show that you're coming in here, not just with a idea of who you want to be and what sort of face you want to put forward, but also that you know the card pool really well and you know a good pun to fit that all in. That's fair. It's a well-reasoned argument, and I was hoping that you would just go with blind loyalty to your username. <laughs> I'm going to disagree. Oh, shit. And this is also a... Hold on. Let me gather my thoughts. We can cut this part out. Yes. No, we can't, Josh. We can't. We, we talked about this. We can't edit audio. It is impossible. Oh, shit. You're right. Anyway, this is also in disrespect to my own username, which has retroactively become part of a card, Orbital Superiority. Honestly, I think that calling back to a piece of fiction, especially like a cyberpunk piece of fiction, is something that wins in a fight. I have to give it to you, Pants. Neuropanzer is one of my favorite screen names just because of the reference to a particular piece of fiction which undergirds the whole genre of the card game we play. That, of course, being Neuromancer by William Gibson, one of the original cyberpunk novels. You might be shocked or you might not be shocked to hear the number of times that I've gotten a private message on Slack from someone that I've known for months, sometimes years, who's like, I just realized that your name is a reference to Neuromancer. That's why it wins in the fight, I think. <laughs> Calling back to the foundational piece of the fiction in your username probably does beat out a card pool. I think I was thinking more about myself where like my fiction is referencing really a webcomic that while it has mm -hmm. cyberpunk elements, isn't really about the cyberpunk aspects or uh, atmosphere so much. Which webcomic is that for the audience who's not familiar? Uh, it's called Gunner Craig Court by Tom Sadell. There is a character in that named Yusengrin who is uh, often ends up being made a fool of, which I often <laughs> empathize and feel kindred with. <laughs> Super cool webcomic, though. I love that webcomic. Yeah, it's fantastic. This sounds like a slums tier person, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> if we could have the real the, or the Gunner Craig Yusengrin on, I would be uh, listen to that as soon as it hit my catcher. <laughs> I'd be concerned if we had like very large teeth involved with that character. That is true. That is true. <laughs> For the audience who's not familiar, we're, we're talking about a wolf, essentially, like a, yeah. a, a wolf with like body armor that's also kind of a tree. Oh, it's, wow. He sounds very Norse. The name makes a lot more sense now. It's it's yeah. like one of those hard uh, to pronounce like Norse names like Yggdrasil. Yeah, and like I might be mispronouncing my own screen name for all I know. I haven't actually gone and tried to find a, the proper pronunciation. 
I guess that's actually a strike against the fiction usernames is sometimes they can be really hard to pronounce and you just don't know how to pronounce it. That That's tough. What are the best card name related usernames that we've seen? Huh. I was going to say, fuck y'all. I'm going to go ahead and open up general and just scroll. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these names just feel so Netrunner. I'm like, I don't know if this is actually a reference to a card or just this person had this name that's sort of. And then some of them are like, oh, I just misread like Branimated as Brainimated for oh. like <laughs> apparently years and just noticed it now. Either it was a card or is now a reference to big chunky Eli's big brother brain, yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, We'll get back to that exact idea in a second, but scrolling up in general, I've reached the point, surprised that this one didn't pop to mind immediately, but obviously we have Code Marvelous based mm. off of self-modifying code. Honestly, yeah. I like that username. That's a good username. It fits with the personality they're trying to present and then also mm -hmm. weaves it nicely with the game as a whole. That's a fantastic example. Yeah. Although Dan's a fucking Shaper player, so I mean... Ah, shit. <laughs> you got a good point. You got a good point there. <laughs> Like Orbital, this has happened to you. Branimated happened to them. Cards popping up and suddenly your username is now a reference to cards happened to me twice in System Gateway. And I'm not okay with it. Neuropancer <laughs> used to be, weren't really cards. I mean, like, I guess there were neural EMP, right? Like that's kind of neural. You don't really shorten that as neuro ever. Like you shorten Neuropancer. However, we now have Neurospike. So Neuro is now a card name. And we also have Pantograph. So Pants is a card. It is fucked up. Why is Nisei coming after me personally? I will not stand for it. Your Slack notifications will never cease if you have them keyed on those keywords now. I, I had to take them off. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do call that card Pants. Fucked up. I had a notification thing on for Orbital which Ooh. already went off way more than you would think because Slack, interestingly enough, talks about orbital bombardment way more than you would think. <laughs> Wait, I need to fill in these Slack channels. <laughs> Where is this happening? Is this happening in general? Are we just talking about orbital bombardment in general? Dude, it's general. It's UK. Sometimes it's some. What? Why Sometimes it it's UK? the OP channels. I don't. I don't fucking know. <laughs> like uh, uh, uh. for some reason, nerds really like to talk about orbital bombardment. Why is that happening in UK? Like they, are, I already worry about UK because they actually talk about Netrunner and they actually talk about what mm -hmm. decks people should play. If they're also talking about orbital bombardment, they are just too dangerous. And now that orbital superiority is a card. The pings are constant, so I had to turn it off. Especially, interestingly enough, UK channel talks about that card a lot. And I huh. shudder to think, like, what would happen if the card was actually good? Because... I, I was about to say, I'm like, I, I feel like it would be a thing that would, might pop up for, like, a week after Gateway is released. And then, like, everyone else will do the same thing I did. Look at, look at the card, go, oh, that's a nice art. Let's put it in the binder. And move on. Yeah, in a world where your four twos are uh, off world and sandbox, there is no reason to run that card. I'm sorry. In the startup program I was running the other day, I think someone plays quite well with it. And I was very confused by that, but I was mm. confused by many things in that tournament. So that's very interesting, uh, right? They have the neutral four twos that are really good at their disposal. What's happening here? Yeah. I think the idea was that there's no real tag punishment in startup it's psychographics 
and Retribution. And those are the ones that are like the closest to winning you a game. There's stuff like a single tag will get you some tempo with predictive planogram. You always have the basic action, trash a resource for two credits. I guess the idea was sometimes the runners will just go, I don't need to clear tags. Funhouse is just an expensive piece of ice that gives me two tags and I still win the game. <laughs> you use orbital superiority so they at least have to have four cards in hand every time. That is a good point. Why you wouldn't play like the tempo neutral off world oh. and, and sandbox. Like they're just so fucking good. <laughs> and they flip around a fundamental factor of the game, which is like, my agenda's cost me money to score. Yeah, no, not these ones. They're yeah. free, basically, except for the actions. I think there's a legitimate argument to have over whether these four twos are stronger than NAPD, but they're certainly two of probably the three strongest neutral four twos ever printed. I would argue that they're stronger just simply because they don't cost influence. Although NAPD is a contender. Did it? Wait, am I misremembering? I think it got. Uh, it was MWL. <laughs> Mostly until it was rotated, so that's why I that's yeah. fair. my yeah. head. I kind of it, it did cost uh, you influence for a long time. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, it was always also, worth it. And I think I remember running this with Val around, and then just accidentally losing games because I forgot about the extra text in the APD. But you were often lucky, and so did the Val player. So it was often just the like we all we we're all just bad at netrunner. Is always the is always the lesson at the end of the day. So, gents, I think we lost the thread here. We were talking about screen names. Oh, right. We were, weren't we? Thankfully, that's the only beef that we have this week. Oh, no. I have some more beef for you. We have a bonus meatloaf. Which would win in a fight? Avatars from Netrunner card art or avatars from video games? These questions seem weirdly, deeply personal for some reason this week. I'm going to say avatars from Netrunner card art because you can have great things like whales flying on a digital ocean. And I don't know what karate guy is going to take on a whale and walk away to, to tell the tale. One to nothing. One to nothing. <laughs> oh, yeah. The champion right here. I grant you that. I grant you that Netrunner card art is very good for avatars. I, I don't know. I just like Plague Knight. Plague Knight's cool. He, he does bombs and stuff. I don't know. Like, I don't know if I've actually played that game. Oh, it's fucking sick. You should play it. What game is that again? The base game is Shovel Knight, and then there is Shovel Knight Plague of Shadows video game recommendations hour. Let's move on. <laughs> As always, the second thing that we do every single Slums cast, our best named segment. No, not that one. What do you have against the segment Akamatsu Memcha? I don't like it. Something else. <sighs> okay, fine. I guess... Um. I guess we can, uh, all right, fine. Let, let's switch to another segment. An offer you can't refuse. That's right. By popular demand, it's back from our last episode, An Offer You Can't Refuse, our second best named segment. This week on An Offer You Can't Refuse, Isengrin, over the last year or so, you have not refused to play HB combo at a lot of major events. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, what the... F this is almost worse. You're the one that forced me to change the goddamn segment name, Josh. You have to deal with this. So, 
you have not refused to play HB Combo at a lot of major events. In the interests of corrupting our audience, especially players who are new to the game, we want to talk about HB Combo. My new favorite thing. Let's start off general. What do you enjoy about playing HB Combo decks? The honest reason is I enjoy winning. Someone sleeved up HB Combo for a game night. Someone brought it in started winning games with it, and I said, I would like to win some games for once, and picked up the deck. That is a real feel. I honestly don't necessarily like combo, but I like playing combo because it wins me games, because I don't have to play actual Netrunner. I had thought of myself as not a combo player. I wanted to, like, I know uh, there's a strong anti-shaper line on Slums Cast, but for a long time, I enjoyed playing my little shaper decks where I do six different things, and then I'm like, all right, time to take click one. Let's go. And then I just lose because I have no money. I have no pressure. And the corp just says, all right, fancy turn. I'm just going to score and score and score and good game. But combo feels like a way where I can say, look at this cool thing I can do, but mm. also I'm I'm actually doing things to win the game. And HB combo to me is the most fun because you have Project Vitruvius, the most skill testing combo tool, I think, that you have across the factions at Netrunner right now. Interesting. What I, what makes you say that? Why why do you think Project Vitruvius is the most skill testing? The other big combo agendas, or even really combo cards, but I, let's talk about agendas because that was the category I said. You know, you have something like AstroScript Pilot Program that basically had one use, which is just boom, I get the next one, boom, I get the next one, et cetera, et cetera. Project Atlas ends up being basically the same role in Wayland decks, where you just use it to get the tool you need to score the next agenda. Maybe that's the agenda itself. Maybe it's the tool to go, you know, the audacity to score out the final point. There's like fringe cases there where you're sometimes like, oh, I'm going to lower my density because I'm going to win next turn if I don't. But it's basically got one use that's 90% of cases. With Vitruvius, I had a combo deck that had a four-card combo it needed to do the score out of the agendas. So you think, okay, I have to make sure every single Vitruvius counter is going back to recur those combo pieces. But in a lot of games, I'd go, you know what? I'm not going to be able to do that full four-card combo what I really need to do is spend that Vitruvius counter on resources to help me recover from my board state or to find an answer to what the runner's just done. You have to balance the, do I save this for my combo or do I use this to progress my board state forward? It ends up being a very subtle card to use with lots of different modes. Occasionally, you just have a Vitruvius counter and the best thing that you can do with it is lower the density of HQ or yank out an agenda that you've hidden in archives or something like that. Exactly, yeah. And and I think one of the things also is while I've been playing combo decks, they're not true, I'm going to score seven points on a combo. I think nothing I've been playing since Efficiency Community Rotated even scores more than one agenda in a turn. They're closer to tempo decks. They just use combos from the hand to open up tempo windows that you don't have if you're trying to play honestly. I actually really enjoy playing HB combo for that same reason. Like It's fun to win games, but also just the way that you play. One of the strengths of CTM is you can just have these windows where the runner makes one mistake and you suddenly punish them and they are so far behind that they can never recover the tempo. But for mm -hmm. HB, you take that window and you translate that into, I score an agenda, but the game's not over. You can still get into my servers, probably. I was finding a lot of people would lose against me. They wouldn't know yet. I feel like mm -hmm. against CTM, 
you know the second you lose because oh wait i don't have eight credits and i've make it i made a run and they've got a good board state where i can't recover they'll get ahead with hp people would be like oh i'm gonna install a rozeki turn one i'm like all right let's let's wrap it up my hand's too good like <laughs> there's just times like that yeah. i can see why people would be annoyed about that fairly you know as i play more of these asa decks and these sports combo decks I'm learning the point where it's the inflection point of, yeah, you just lost. What's really frustrating about a lot of them is it's very early. Vitruvius and that density of HQ that Pants was talking about, that is really skill testing, I do think. You have to know what card would be valuable to pull if you don't lose there so that you Mm -hmm. can try to win the game after. We've talked a little bit about the specific deck. I'd like to run through what the core combo is for newer players who might not be familiar with it. The core combo for that particular ASA deck is based on you need a card called Reconstruction Contract. That is an asset. So one of the interesting things about this combo, it has a piece that you can trash out of hand. What Reconstruction Contract does is it is an asset that can have advancement counters on it. And if you trash it, you transfer those advancement counters over to a different installed card. You combine that with Dedication Ceremony, which says take a face-up asset or agenda, throw three advancement counters onto it for a single click, but you can't score that particular card that you just put the advancement counters on this turn. But that doesn't matter. You throw them on the Reconstruction Contract, you get six advancement counters on it with a few Dedication Ceremonies, and then you pop that to throw all those advancement counters onto a Project Vitruvius, and you score a Project Vitruvius that has three counters on it, lets you recur three different things. Well, three things, that's a reconstruction contract, a dedication ceremony, and a dedication ceremony. That's another combo right there ready to go. What I find super interesting actually about playing against that combo and against HP combo in general You end up with interesting decision points as the runner if the game is close. If you get down to the point where you're on four points or you're on six points, but the Corp is on four points and they just need to score one, five, three to win, based on the things that you've seen in HQ, based on the things that you know were in archives, based on the number of Vitruvius counters that you know that they have, you have to start thinking about calculating how likely is it that they have an extra way to gain an extra click? Like how likely is it that they have two red level clearances in their hand? If they have the two red level clearances, then I need to keep them below this credit threshold this turn, which means I either need to get them to res ice or I need to just try to win. It creates really interesting counterplay on the runner side because you have to take calculated risks based on how likely you think it is for them to be able to win. One of the interesting things I found when playing against it, when playing this combo deck, is the first time you play someone, it's very hard for them to know the right lines. It kills in Swiss when people didn't know what what to go, what's happening. But when I was playing against like a Leela deck that knows the game plan, has an idea that I'm on the deck either because they've seen a piece or because I've played them before and or they recognize my username, whatever, the matchup becomes super dynamic where. They're trying to goad me into resing ice that we both know I can't afford to res, but 
I kind of have to because they could just win or they could get the Leela bounce on a card. The way you attack the combo Asa list is a little different than the way you attack I'm going to res Fairchilds and Border Controls and score out. I still call those Tablet Asa, even though it ended up migrating to being a different sort of list in a lot of ways. You punish Glacier in a different way than you punish combo. And I think one of the tricky things for players... I don't know how viable that specific reconstruction contract combo is in Gateway, but pre-Gateway release, the tricky thing was that there was two to three good Asa archetypes that you had to play against a little bit differently for each to really try and punish the ways they could win. A tough guessing game for the runner in a lot of cases. That's been true for kind of the best HB identity for a while, because we have that with both Asa and we had that with CI, where sometimes the best CI list or sometimes the best Asa list was the one where, well, to win against both of the other good Asa lists, you run early, get accesses early, try to rip agendas aggressively, and they hard-hitting news you. Dead. <laughs> 2017, there were the three CI decks. There was the one that won, which was Tempo CI. Brain Rewiring, which was the one everybody hated and eventually had all the cards banned out of it. And then there was also Load Testing CI that would hard-hitting news you with two load testings so you couldn't clear tags. Really hard to tell if it's combo or tempo or whatever the hell it is. Going back to... And that reminded me of one of my favorite things about that that I sort of forgot in the story of this is I took Pencil's World List and then took out the hedge funds. When I was first learning the deck, I was like, I'm struggling to like remember how to do all the combo pieces in one turn. I'm going to just put some red level clearances in. And then I was like, wait, this card is nuts. This is saying I get to score a 5-3 from hand by playing my red level clearance to install a non-agenda card, in this case, the reconstruction contract. And then it gives me the click back. So that's one credit. And then res the reconstruction, that's another credit. And I can play my two dedication ceremonies for four credits. But because I got the click back on installing, I have the one click remaining to just install my 5-3 and score it immediately. And so I'm scoring a 5-3 from hand for four credits. That's insane. I ended up like trying to bait the Netrunner community by saying hedge fund was wrong in the in the world list, even though it totally was fine there. I think for the last year, I don't think I had hedge fund in any of my corp decks, which is a very weird CTM does it. And now apparently, if you're the right Asa, that could be you too. Even CTM sometimes played hedge fund in the heyday of Val, you were still on hedge fund because otherwise you just get mining accent. It always feels interesting where you cut the core econ card of Netrunner. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have a fair amount of practice with these HP combo decks. You've got some pretty high finishes with them at some pretty big events. Something that people listening to this episode might be curious your opinion on. How do you get better at playing combo decks? The real answer is, is reps. Like, that's the big thing. And I think the best way to get better is to play with another person Find someone you feel like you can talk to about the game and say, let's go over what my deck is trying to do and let's play out of the game. And at some point I might stop and say, here's my hand. Do you think I have the combo here? Talk through it together. I think I play almost no games on JNet Casual where I don't know the other person ahead of time and I'm not planning out the game. I think the most valuable stuff is often... I want to go in, practice this thing. I'm going to find someone to help me do it. And then you sort of talk it out. And sometimes you can be like, hey, you're making a run here, but I actually think this run is bad. What if we talk about it, make a different run that challenges me more? 
be a little selfish when learning and tr try and ask yourself like, okay, so what happens if they do this? If the runner installs a Stargate, let's just make something up where the runner manages to get a Stargate down. Maybe we just like pull it out of the bookshelf and put it on the table and say, what does the match matchup look like if Stargate is just appears? That's an interesting way to do it, building these best and worst case scenario hands and just kind of running through them. In a similar vein, one of the things that I try to do when I'm doing combo as somebody who dabbles in combo here and there is understanding when you need to fire off when you don't have everything for a particular combo. That's interesting that you mention that because rather than just play games and try to understand where I can do that, you're right. You could just set up the perfect or imperfect hands. That kind of brings me back to the CI7 combo threads where people actually put together situations with CI7 combo and were like, okay, can you find a line out of this? And what you're talking about really does sound like those puzzles and questions. So that's a really interesting approach to it. And I can't even say I did that much of it exactly like that. The other thing to do that I found very useful, take a line that you think is maybe wrong. One of, I think, the most skill-testing parts of any ASA deck right now is how you use your fully operationals. And I think the thing I found when playing was I'm going to try overdrawing more. I'm going to try running lower to the ground and see where that gets me. If you're not going to find someone where you can be like, let's jam some games, let's try and talk about lines, about what could pose challenges, just being like, okay, if I have cards that have different modalities, what happens when I push those modalities to one extreme or the other? So how many red level clearances can I use to draw cards and gain two credits? And how many do I need to save for my combo? So learning lessons like that, can I try not resing any ice against criminal? Honestly, that actually was the right play in a lot of cases. Criminal's going to doof me, and I can't stop that. So I have to find a way to play around the fact that I'm going to have between zero and three credits at the start of every turn. And I have to find a way to win because I have a four-cost com four combo. You can do it. Try pushing these extremes a little bit. CI combo threads, those mattered in practice, right? Like getting these reps with the combo, thinking of the really obscure lines. I don't remember which event this was. It was a big enough event that there was a stream of it. And I was watching the stream from home. Dan Dargenio on CI7. And he got to the turn where it was like, he needs to combo this turn. He's going to lose next turn, most likely. And so he's in the tank for a while. Chad is running through it. Chad is convinced Dan cannot combo this turn. He is short either a click or a credit or a Jackson. I think I know the game. We're getting like, guys, I play a lot of CI. He doesn't have it. There's no way. He can't do it. And the line that Dan ends up taking, he ends up with one extra click somewhere in the process. And with that click, he clicks for a credit and is now credit perfect to win. Sometimes you have to remember the basic action card can help you win the game, even if you have this crazy, you know, in that case, it was a lot more than a four card combo. There were so many cards involved in the exact way that things happen. Yeah. It can be yeah. sick. One of the things I think can be interesting about combo and Netrunner is that there are so many points of interaction there's a lot of ways for the combo to go wrong or for the combo player to have to adapt. It's not just, I play six cards, I do 20 damage to your face, and it's done. I remember the year there. That was 2016. Dan Darginio played CI at both King of Servers and Worlds. The game I was thinking of was wrong when you were talking about him comboing off. The one that I was thinking about was also on stream, but he was against Dean Tran. What had happened was... Dean basically is just nonchalant about this. He's like, I have the shard on Street Peddler. 
you are not going to win. Had very, very meticulously gotten it. Street peddler Mm -hmm. for street peddler for street peddler for deja Mm -hmm. vu for street peddler. Had clearly been looking for shard on peddler. Ten cards left in the deck. There's a legitimate question. Does he have it? Because he's now out of ways to get peddler back. This was the game that was going to decide whether or not Dan was in the cut and whether or not he could three-peat. Just went fuck it and tried to combo out and got the shard popped and lost. But what was happening in chat at the time was there were some people that were going, I think that there's actually still a way to win this. Nobody could come up with a combo in chat, but somebody on Stimhack forums later posted a 100% to win line that he could have done. Dan was accomplished with fucking CI combo, but in this moment, just didn't know the line combo decks. There are lines that you just can't see in the moment or like you would have only gotten if you have a certain amount of reps in or we're in a certain situation, if that makes sense. It does, because in that case, it wasn't a matter of not having enough reps in. Dan had played that deck a bunch. It wasn't a matter Mm -hmm. of not being good enough with the deck. Dan won a lot of events with that deck. He was extremely good with CI7. It was just a case of this exact line probably was something that had never come up. I remember seeing the line posted, but it was something like it was not only click and credit perfect. It was also exact sequence perfect. Zero wiggle room whatsoever Mm -hmm. in the combo. And that just speaks to how difficult combo can be. Him being credit perfect on the game that he won, but then... If he would have been sequence perfect, he would have won. There's a lot more skill and interaction there than you actually think. And one of the things I liked about this Asa combo list I was running last year, it was really dynamic and you didn't actually need tech as the runner. It could lose to good runner play, did often enough that it matters, right? I wasn't undefeated at all my events and it didn't just lose to like, oh, I drew all my agendas. You could play intelligently, really shark it. So also good advice, play against combo a lot if you want to beat combo. I think this is a lot of discussion on combo. I'm hoping at this point in the episode that the non-combo degenerates in the audience are not too croissant with us. Uh... What's wrong, Josh? Oh, nothing. But I think it's time for baking up Think Loaves. Pants, I think this is a question that you had or a topic that you had. So would you like to bring us into it? Absolutely, yeah. This week on Baking Up Think Loaves, you recently ran two pretty high-profile single-sided Swiss tournaments. We wanted to talk a little bit more about single-sided Swiss in general as a topic, and I guess the place that we should probably start is the basics. What is single-sided Swiss? Single-sided Swiss is just the Swiss system we play, and Swiss is just a way of pairing people at a tournament so that everyone plays in every round of Swiss. In Netrunner, we typically do double-sided Swiss, which is just saying, I play my corp against your runner, and you play your runner against my corp. Or maybe I just did that the same way twice. You play both of your decks against each opponent. In single-sided Swiss, you don't do that. When you are assigned your opponent, you're also told this is the deck you're going to play against that opponent. And you play that one game, and then you go back to the judge, report your result, and then you do the Swiss pairings again to get a new opponent. And most of the time, you will play your other deck against your next opponent. This ends up having advantages for competitive top players Mm -hmm. because in the double-sided Swiss format, there arises a lot of situations where maybe, let's say me and Pants are both having 
freakishly good days and we're very close to making the top cut of a tournament difficult scenario to envision but go ahead we both need to get six points from the round in double-sided swiss and a single match point win is only going to be worth three for us if both of us get three neither of us make the cut the best move for both of us is that we agree to say whoever wins our first match is going to get the full six points and so that's called a what's often called a two for one I have a strong bias against two for one. I think it's pretty bad for tournaments. It can lead to weird situations where in Magnum Opus, I think there was like a, you can only lose four times or something like that. And then you're out. Everyone who had lost four games for the rest of the tournament just did their two for ones until they lost and then they were done. Let's say we have a court meta where corpse wins 70% of their games. You can be lucky and win that coin flip and just get corp, corp, corp. And you're going to win tournaments more often than people that don't two for one. And it also means you're getting the match record of someone who's won 10 games, but maybe you only won five. And that feels unfair to me in some kind of cosmic sense, I guess. It also feels, to me at least, a little against the spirit of a Netrunner tournament. The idea was you came here to play games of Netrunner. Why are you opting into... I mean, I know why, but why is the tournament set up to incentivize you playing half as many games of Netrunner? As I got better at Netrunner, I got more open to using two-for-ones, and I will totally use them, too. I'm there to play Netrunner, but I'm also there to win the tournament. And if the incentive is such that I have a higher likelihood, that's why. We need to distinguish between individuals using a two-for-one and a system that is set up to incentivize mm -hmm. two-for-ones. For sure. Big difference. Yeah. I personally two-for-one in double-sided Swiss as well, because, yeah, if I want to win, a lot of times it's the best move at a certain point in the tournament. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with mm -hmm. basically using legitimate angles of the mm -hmm. tournament structure and the rules to win games. But there's definitely an argument to be made that the tournament shouldn't be set up where the correct thing for me to do is try to play half as many games. I really do want to emphasize, like, A, maybe I didn't use two-for-ones in every tournament this year, but I came damn close to using them in every tournament I played in this year. And I definitely ID'd every time I could this year, which is sort of a side issue to some extent. I would encourage people to do it in double-sided Swiss tournaments when it's going to be to your advantage. I wouldn't feel bad about doing it when people ask, should I, like as a philosophical thing, you should. The structure should not be in place that makes that so rewarding and valuable. As sort of a back of the envelope, I was like, oh, if I win half of my games of Netrunner, what's the difference if I two for one every round and if I just play out my games normally? You make it into the cut a lot more often if you just two for one every single round. And the way I oh, basically God. think about it is if every game you play is a coin flip, Flipping fewer coins is means it's more likely you're going to get the number of heads you need. It turns you into higher variance, so you're also more likely to just get wrecked all day. But you need an extremely high number, and you're more likely to hit that high number if you have higher variance like that. I don't think anybody is willing to two-for-one round one, though. I ran the simulation, and like below a 70% win rate, you kind of should. Until you're winning so much... You probably should two for one. And the point is, if you are an elite Netrunner player, you probably do have a 70% win rate in the first round. And so you are losing value. If you're a pencil, you shouldn't two for one in the first round almost ever, unless you are mm -hmm. paced up against someone you know who is just as good as you. But if you're unsure, it's probably technically correct. If your goal is making the cut, and that's weird. No shit. Wow. That's fucking wild. I didn't even know that. 
in the like 60 to 70 range, it's pretty marginal. It's like one to 5% versus I think like 10, I want to say percent extra chance of making it into the cut. I ran it before Worlds because I ran it for my article series on single side switch, but I was like, I don't want to publish this before Worlds because that just seems really rough. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> a bit of a bonus loaf here. Can you enumerate what the pros and cons for single-sided Swiss versus double-sided Swiss are? There are a couple of bonuses to single-sided Swiss, uh, and I think also a couple of notable drawbacks. I really love single-sided Swiss, but I think there's important drawbacks to consider for these different types of events. The mathy stuff for single-sided Swiss is that basically if you show up to a six-round tournament, you're going to play six games. You are not going to play more. You're not going to play less. You basically need to play every game to guarantee yourself to have a spot in the cut if that's your goal for the tournament. And you're not going to have a lot of situations where players agree to intentionally draw and make their way into the cut. If our community goal is, let's have people show up to play Netrunner, it's a great way to have people show up to play Netrunner. Intentional draws are going to be less powerful in single-sided Swiss because obviously you only get to intentional draw for one game. And I'm assuming that in most cases, when you ID, you get one point instead of one and a half two IDs don't add up to one game width, which is a huge exactly. thing. So you have to be safer to ID. That doesn't mean that they're gone entirely, but it just means that they're harder to actually do in practice. Yeah, IDing is still going to happen when you have two players that are outperforming everyone. You have to be basically a whole win ahead of everyone else who can make the cut, and so does your opponent. That much of a commanding position, you can say, yeah, I can sit this out, I can save some mental pressure, there were a lot of cases where I was safely IDing because I was like, well, I'm not a full win ahead of everyone else. Or I'm not two wins ahead of everyone else, which is how double-sided Swiss works. So because of my strength of schedule, I can just safely ID and make it through. I'm getting half a win instead of a third of a win, which ends up making a pretty big difference for scoring. The classic buy, sweep, ID, ID pattern. And actually, one of the neat things is that buys are worth a lot less, which I think is a good thing. You know, the community can have a longer discussion about how much of a reward you get for winning an event. And maybe those sort of earned buys could be worth more points. But one of the neat things is if you have an odd number of players, that odd player who got the buy because they're the lowest scoring person or whatever, they miss 35 minutes of play rather than 65 minutes of play. And then they get to get back in and play the rest of the tournament. It feels much nicer for the people that for whatever reason, don't get to play around. It wasn't a thing I thought about until I ran a tournament and I had some people with the buying being like, it was great. I was just 35 minutes. I got to watch a game and then get back into it as opposed to like sitting there and twiddling for your thumbs for an hour, especially in like a three or four round tournament. If that happens to you, you're missing a quarter of your day, basically. What are the cons then? What is not as good about single-sided Swiss? So the biggest con with single-sided Swiss is just that it's going to take more time to play the same number of games. I spend a lot of work trying to math this out, but basically because a single-sided Swiss round is going to be 35 minutes and then a double-sided Swiss round is 65, you'll note if I double 35, that's 70. That's more than 65. Then also you have an extra downtime between rounds where you have to repair everyone. Everyone has to report their results. So you end up adding 10 to 15 minutes to play two games of single-sided Swiss versus one round of double-sided. 
That said, in digital land that we're all living in right now, the downtime can be pretty small. Making a new table in JNet is much easier than picking up all your bag of stuff, rolling up your mats, putting your tokens in, and moving over three tables kind of thing. That downtime ends up being two minutes. That doesn't really add up that much. I did a lot of work to say, oh yeah, you know, if you were playing a four-round double-sided Swiss tournament, you'll get the same results most of the time with only six rounds of single-sided Swiss. One of the interesting things about single-sided Swiss that's sort of an advantage for it is people try and say, oh, well, my corp deck could be stronger than my runner deck or vice versa. But we also all know that the good players tend to win with both of their decks. And so you end up having stuff where if I, if you've won with both of your decks in single-sided Swiss, you're going to be paired up against probably some very good players and you'll be up against probably your third unique person going into that third round. Whereas in double-sided Swiss, you play against one person and maybe I got the guy who is just learning to play and showing up to their first tournament and I'm really excited that they're there, but I've played a lot of Netrunner, so I'm going to sweep 2-0. I'm going to have the same score as someone who battled it out, two high top-level players. And the Swiss tournament system that uses doubles, I just goes, these are the same. If you've won one game of Netrunner against your opponent, I'm probably going to bet on you winning the other game most of the time. Double-sided Swiss can't really account for that. Single-sided Swiss does say... If you've won a game, you're probably more likely to win the other game. So let's separate those two people if we can, and they can rematch later if it ends up that it was wrong and they are the same skill level. So you sort of get to the level where people are playing against people of similar skill faster in single-sided Swiss. In single-sided Swiss, how much weight do you lend to pairing up and pairing down versus re-pairing against the same opponent with different sides? The pairing up versus pairing down and matching the sides, ultimately, that's a philosophical question. My opinion is that we should be somewhat aggressively making sure that people are playing the, both of their decks the same number of times. I think this is somewhat of a balanced reason. So like in the startup tournament I ran yesterday at time of recording, Corpse had like a, I want to say like a 60 to 70% win rate overall. That was to me an example of why, let's say you're at three wins. There's another person also at three wins, but you've both played your Corp one more time. If we were ignore the fact that you've both played Corp one more time, you guys play against each other. Whoever flipped the coin and got Corp wins again. Maybe it's just, this is a Corp meta or maybe it's player skill. And so when you kind of force everyone to play both of their decks the same number of times as much as possible, you can kind of account for that sort of imbalance from the asymmetry. That's a very long-winded way of saying right now, the sort of rule I have is you should look for someone within plus or minus two opposite deck played more often than you or has no, I call it bias for one deck or the other before you're paired against someone at the same skill level or the same score and the same bias play their corp deck more than their runner deck kind of thing. In terms of me rematching against you, we could rematch just as easily as I could play up against Pants. Yeah, and I think one of the keys here is these are kind of costs that are embedded into the algorithm. If at some point in the future the community decides it's more important to maintain balance of playing different players or it's more important to maintain balance of playing the exact same skill level, you can add that into the algorithm, but it definitely seems like these presets are very well chosen for Netrunner, where it is pretty frequent that Corp and Runner are imbalanced a lot more than individual players, I would say. One other thing to think about with the pairing up and pairing down that we don't think about because double-sided Swiss just makes us not think about this is 
after me and Orbital play our first in a double-sided Swiss tournament, one of us has already won a game. And so we're kind of already playing a pair-up, pair-down match. We just don't think of it that way because we think of the match as the two games rather than the match as the individual games. So mm-hmm. a lot of there's like weird consensual like, oh, if this is very court meta, maybe single-sided Swiss won't work if we're in like an 80% court meta or a 90% court meta. But if you think about a double-sided Swiss, like it's still just games of Netrunner at the end of the day. So a lot of those sort of like mega side balance hypothesis stuff doesn't end up making a huge difference, but it does end up sort of, um, I've just lost my train of thought. Sorry. I've just completely lost it, apparently. I think it works if there's a big side imbalance. Probably the most famous example of a game that has single-sided Swiss is chess. And there is an inherent side imbalance that is large and will never go away. The white pieces will always have a huge advantage because they move first. And yet, it's just kind of the norm in chess. They have single-sided Swiss and like, yeah, how else would we do it? Yeah, very much so. You know, for chess, especially because I would guess they end up there because like, oh, their games are always going to be very long. You don't have the time to do double-sided Swiss and get meaningful results. In Netrunner, we've sort of been kind of walking along like we do, but I think we're finding maybe some of the reasons why it might be better to not go along the way we are and try and explore other formats for our tournaments. Agreed. Speaking of the cons, one of the cons that appears to me is a below-the-surface-level con. If you're a TO and you use the software available, but you're not doing the software yourself, right? Mm -hmm. But it does seem to me like with single-sided Swiss and Netrunner and the two sides, that you do have to come up with an algorithm, right? Whereas opposed to double-sided Swiss, it's something you could do on paper, right? Because you never pair against the same person, you pair up or pair down. It seems like with single-sided Swiss, there is sort of a brain cost to it as far as whether or not we're balancing the sides, whether or not we're pairing up or pairing down. It seems like you do have to have a piece of software to do that. Do you mind if I cut Not in sure how much of a concern that is, but yeah, sure. Go ahead. Sorry. So I've written a couple of silly blog posts that are too wordy and too mathy. I came up with all the software. I've now rewritten it three different times to make it work. I posted it and someone said, hey, do you know that the Star Wars CCG had a method to do this by hand? I went, what? It turns out basically what you can do, you take everyone's name, you write it on a card, you record their results from round one, and then you say, I'm going to make a pile of all my runners. I'm going to make a pile of all my corpse. I'm going to rank them by score and shuffle within each group. And then I just say, who's my highest scoring runner player? Who's my highest scoring court player? They're playing. And then you just keep pulling off the deck and match it like that. And that matches this like complicated math algorithm that uses squares and graph minimization from graph theory stuff from like high level mathematics. And just with a deck of cards, you could do the same thing. It like the deck of cards guarantees everyone will play the same number of sides. My algorithm says sometimes you won't if your scores are too different. Um, But yeah. One of the things that happened when I ran a standard tournament, the first single-sided Swiss, my algorithm just like crashed at the end of round four. And so I paired rounds five and six by hand using those cards. Um, You're blowing my fucking mind right now. I could have coded the deck of cards and that probably would have been easier than what I'm doing. But I get the point of having things coded up the way that you have them, because in theory, you can change the inputs. You can change the exact way that it works in the future as well. 
this probably gets into an important related question that I have, which is there are kind of two questions here. One is if you want to run your own single-sided Swiss tournament, what is the best way to have a single-sided Swiss pairing algorithm? And relatedly, if there are people listening to this podcast who have kind of like coding acumen and coding skills and such, who want to help contribute to make single-sided Swiss technology more available, how can they help? This must be a bonus loaf. We're knee-deep in lows now. <laughs> I set um, a bakery up in here. You beat me to the joke with a funnier joke. Okay, go ahead. So the tools I'm trying to make, I'm aiming to have them be user-friendly. So if someone wanted to run something tomorrow, I could send them my stuff. The problem is you have to be kind of friendly with command line interfaces. I built a UI app and then discovered that it just didn't work. But now you can do stuff like you can import and export from Excel sheets, kind of things like that. The other thing people could probably do in the meantime is just go and find a chess single-sided Swiss software. They're going to be out there and they'll work well. You could do the deck of cards, but if people want to help develop, I would appreciate other pairs of eyes on programming and especially people that could help me build sort of a web UI interface or I guess computer installable one, but I think a web is probably makes more sense. I've been getting some help from Solemn Storm, who's done a ton of heavy lifting on this, but I think linking things together is tricky. Making a nice user interface is tricky. And I am a chemist by training, not a software engineer. Simpson's gif of stepping into rakes has been my development process here. Uh, so the best way is probably to reach out to me on Slack or Discord or whatever as Zen Grinesi. Or you can honestly, if you do type single-sided Swiss, I do have that ping. So every time someone types single-sided Swiss, I am there. <laughs> so that's you know a good way to get my attention to get some help. Um, oh man, RIP your notifications, but oh also my. that's very user-friendly way to contact you. We'll include in the show notes links to kind of how to reach you or reminders of how to reach you. If you, you are, the sentence is getting confusing because of pronouns. Yes. If you, our listener, are interested in getting involved, check the show notes. We'll have information there. We have one more loaf in the bakery here before we leave. You mentioned that you've run a few single-sided Swiss tournaments. I've also mentioned that you've run a few single-sided Swiss tournaments recently. I guess we, we don't have to pin that entirely on you. Setting aside the single-sided Swiss aspect of things, did any moments from those tournaments or any plays that happened to those tournaments really stand out to you? I think one of the favorite things I saw was in a startup format tournament, I got the list of decks and I was like, okay, this is a lot of what I expect. I see a precision design. I see a lot of Zaya. I see some reality plus, which makes some sense. I see some game that makes some sense. I see a lot of Hoshiko. Oh, someone's being Reina. That's so cute. And then I get to round five and the Reina list is undefeated. Or maybe this is going into round five. They're four and oh. And I'm like, holy moly, this person has something figured out. I didn't think Reina was going to get two wins. I didn't think Reina was going to get a win, probably. It just seemed worse than all of your other options in Anarch. And they're paired up against a Precision Design. And I'm like, okay, well, Precision Design is doing pretty well today. So I'll be interested to see what sort of happens. The Precision Design installs in a remote, installs a piece of ice, plays a hedge fund. It looks like they're setting up to score. Okay, cool. We'll have to see what the Reina can do to pressure this. They install a cookbook. Oh, this is already exciting. They install a botulus and they run the server. I'm like, that is so hype. And then the core red is a magnet. And oh. I go, 
And it blew my mind, the hard call of just, I've got one piece of ice, I'm going to score behind this magnet. They like rolled the dice, they paid four credits for a magnet, but it was exactly the ice they needed there. The bonus value of already the thing was installed on it. You didn't even need to drag it over from a different piece of ice. No, it was the highest value magnet you could have. The runner stole two credits in the click from themselves installing on your magnet. That's an amazing play. I feel really bad for the Reina because that's so unlucky for them, basically. The precision design player, I don't know exactly why, made a new remote, another agenda in it. I'm guessing that maybe they were flooded. So there was like agenda behind a magnet, agenda behind an unread piece of ice. The Reina plays Xanadu and runs the unread piece of ice and scores because the corp has four credits and doesn't res. A couple turns later, the corp has built up money and puts another card in that unres remote. Reina installs, I believe installs another botulist, runs that remote, and it is the second magnet in the list. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. This is like one of my favorite things about the LCG format and that runner in particular is like magnet, even when Parasite Data Sucker was a thing, was sort of an okay piece of ice, right? Mm -hmm. But now with Botulus and Trank being everywhere, Magnet is actually low-key one of the best includes in system update and one of the best pieces of HB ice. Totally here for it. And I'm totally surprised, but I also fucking love it. Oh my god. I love that game because a lot of the startup was someone built 12 res ice game net deck and then eventually wins because the runner didn't prepare for that. Or they built a 12 ice earth station deck and the runner didn't prepare for it. This was like a seven turn game where the corporation scores their final agenda by going seamless launch, seamless launch, score a unadvanced, uh, an unadvanced five, three off the board. And it's just yes. like- this is the kind of netrunner I love where the runner of the corp is throwing Hail Mary or haymakers at each other and trying to win. Corp is credit perfect. The runner tried to siphon them down with like Xanadu ended up being an icebreaker for them. It was a beautiful game of netrunner. One of the things that I love about the magnet res too is you see a cookbook. Another thing that I'd kind of expect out of that deck is a chisel. That doesn't work on magnet either. Yeah. Magnet is low-key really good against a lot of stuff right now. And Chisel with Cookbook, that's all Chisel needed. Fucking Cookbook is I'm, so good. To, and to, then, be, to be fair, Cookbook is a lot. Getting an extra counter odds. It's quote-unquote all Chisel needed, but that is a lot that Chisel needed. Um, when I saw Cookbook, I said, this is never going in a deck. Grimoire was good in a couple of decks for a couple of small interactions and mostly because of the MU. Boy, am I wrong. <laughs> no, yep. Nisei loves fucking awesome viruses, man. <laughs> and they're awesome after one or two counters, too, which is why Cookbook is so fucking good right now, is these cards, if Cookbook didn't exist, some of them would be okay, and some of them would be bad, like Chiseled. But with Cookbook, it opens up so many possibilities, because now you only need to get one extra counter instead of two. I love the current state of viruses, I'm not even going to lie. I hate the current state of virus clearing because it seems a little too easy. But then again, maybe it should be. I don't know. I don't know. 
I feel like one of the early adopters on the 08 sandbox is just a tempo neutral 4-2 train. I was putting it in my combo ASA list because I was like, I don't have other agendas I want to run, so this seems good. And, oh, I guess it's okay against Amakua as well. And now as everyone's figured out, basically you pick the like, are you doing five threes or are you doing whatever? And then you say, am I running sandbox? And then you go and look at your infaction things after you look at sandbox, which feels a little dirty right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember cutting Nisei's before cutting sandboxes in Pawana, which just feels very, very strange. And I looked at you like you were nuts, but it's absolutely correct because... Nisei, as powerful as it is, costs you clicks and credits to score. And Sandbox is basically just free. And since you're going to clear viruses anyway at some point versus that Amakua during the game, it's actually tempo positive. That's way more important than having three agendas that say on the run. And that's incredible to me because Nisei has been a 3x in Jinjeki Glacier forever. Ah, this fucking game, man. Yeah. <laughs> More agendas in the game being tempo positive, I think it's a very different look for a Netrunner. It's going to be a little bit different from the classic Netrunner of 2015, 2016, where agendas are a real labor to score. But I think they also hopefully opens up interesting design space if we're able to bring down the power level in other places. Because I think while it's interesting to tell the corp, you have to put a bunch of lodestones in your deck and score these lodestones. The game should, in theory, also be dynamic and interesting when you say, I get to put this card in my deck and it gets to help me win the game and I get to be excited about scoring. I think that it's going to be a different look, but one I'm excited to see. So 100% agreed. I think that's a good segue, though. Speaking of the old classic terrible to score agendas, landscape of 2015 Netrunner, we have a deck to talk about today. It is time for Deck and Bamboozle. Hell yeah! It's time to talk about the decks you would bring to a tournament, nor wouldn't. Yeah, so Deck and Bamboozled, for those who are not familiar with this segment, is a segment where we talk about a deck that was brought to an actual tournament with the actual goal of doing well, and then it bamboozled us. The deck this week is brought to us by our special guest. As always, I'm going to read through the deck a little bit, give a few key pieces of information about it, and then we'll actually discuss. So let's talk about this deck. The first thing I want to point out on this deck is the published list, the 24th of June, 2014. This is true vintage Netrunner here. The ID for this deck is Grindle, or as it is actually correctly known, Grandle, Power Unleashed. Grandle is an ID that's a 45-10, and it says you start the game with 10 credits and one bad publicity. Decklist, we've got some agendas. We've got two false leads, three geothermal fracking, three hostile takeover, three project atlers, and one the cleaners. Assets, we've got two pad campaigns. Operations, we have two anonymous tip, three hedge fund, three restructure, two scorched earth, two sea source, and two witness tampering. On the ice side, we have two Bastion, two Curtain Wall, two Ice Wall, two Wraparound, two Enigma, one Inazuma, two Chimera, and then two Archer, one Draco, three Grim, and two Guard. God, there are so many cards here that have been rotated. This is like seeing a history book in some ways. It's sick. 
Yeah, I routinely delete all of my tournament lists and have the memory of a goldfish. So I went back and said, oh, this is my first published list. I know I brought this list to a tournament, or if I didn't bring this exact list, it was two cards off. It was something beautiful like this. I was a huge Grindle fan back in the day. It was my favorite deck. Looking at it now, I can't help but laugh at, I think, 70% of the cards in this list. It ruses me looking at it now, so... That's the sign of a good deck when it ruses you as you look back at it. If you had to narrow it down to one particular card in the list, what ruses you the most? So Wayland was almost unplayable at this in 2014 at this point in time. Basically, so we want to install the Plastreet Carapace, which everyone ran usually two of just so that they could get 100% win rate against Wayland because Wayland had no good ice. They had a lot of money and nothing to do with it. So often... At the time, Wayland would splash a snare so that they could at least sometimes get a surprise kill when the runner hits the snare, and then you can hit them with three scorches next turn. So that's usually at least two influence in every list. I said, nah, who needs to win games? I need a good code gate. So I'm going to spend two influence on Inazuma, a code gate that does nothing if it's the only piece of ice installed. It has to be an outer ice on a piece of ice that already exists. So Yeah, Inazuma might be one that newer players are not familiar with or players like myself that have never played the card are not familiar with. Inazuma is a code gate. It costs three, it has strength five, and its subroutines are, first subroutine, the runner cannot break any subroutines on the next piece of ice they encounter during this run. And then second subroutine, the runner cannot jack out until after encountering the next piece of ice during this run. So yeah, super wombo combo with just uh, something gross, I guess. Um, yeah, it makes some sense in Shinteki where you can be like, oh, you'll run, I'll res the Inazuma, and I'll like have a Neural Katana behind it. And maybe you don't have your sentry break. Neural Katana is probably not the best example. Maybe an Anansi behind this or something. Like It's just like something that's annoying and frustrating to break, and it's going to hurt the runner. In those days, Sarugi, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sarugi or Kumainu. Um, yeah, because Kumainu was in the same pack as Inazuma, I believe. They were both Honor and Profit. It makes a little bit less sense when you're Inazuma-ing into an ice wall, which was either going to end the run or not end the run. It makes maybe the least amount of sense when you also have Curtain Wall in your list, which you never want to install Inazuma in front of because Curtain Wall is another throwback card. It was a 14 to res barrier with six strength, but then said if Curtain Wall is the outermost piece of ice, this has four extra strength. So I could never put an Inazuma in front of a Curtain Wall. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm laughing at myself too much. Yeah. This speaks to something that I want to get into about the Grendel, the Taint, the Fleshy Fun Bridge. This particular deck, and I'm going to disagree with you on the fact that Waylon was garbage at this point. I don't think that it was. If you built this particular ID in this particular deck in a certain way, which I don't think that you did here. <laughs> so I think this deck was awesome early game and as a rush deck. And I think that when you are rocking like a snare and like three sea source in this deck, and you're rocking like three scorched earth, this deck is in the early game hard to play against because remember, Plastic cost, um, uh, God, was it three or four? I believe it is one million credits. Three credits, but that was a million credits at the time. 
Yeah. So especially against an ID that starts out with 10, right? And the fact that you were playing like geothermal fracking meant that you were going to have more credits in the runner. Some of these played, um, what the fuck was it? Profiteering. Yep. That allowed you to go even higher against the runner. I think at that point, the deck as a rush deck was really good. But I think what you did here is the classic mistake of far too clever by half deck builders where you split your focus, right? Yes. You have a lot of stuff here that's early game rush ice, right? And you have some of this early game plan of I'm going to score behind the threat of a scorched earth. But then you also have late game ice. You have the curtain walls. You have an Inazuma, although it doesn't do much, but it is is obviously not early game ice. Yeah. The dream with the Inazuma is they hit the Inazuma, they can't jack out, and you res an archer and just boom, I just won the game with a single ice Mm -hmm. res. Yeah. And gave up three points to do it. You have to have scored an agenda for it. You have to have the archer in the perfect position. You have Inazuma in the perfect position. Rig shitter back in the day, like it worked kind of, but you needed a perfect set of scenarios for it to really kind of work. Um, basically, what I'm saying at the end of the day is I think you have two of the right ideas in this deck, but for the ID you picked, you should have gone with the one that was basically just like, I'm going to rush out and if not, kill you. <laughs> yeah, no, I laughed when I looked at this list. I was like, okay, cool. My ID. One thing about Grindle is like you only have 10 influence instead of 15. I'm paying a big cost to have not just the bad pub that I'm getting the runner for the whole game. I'm also saying I can put fewer cross-faction cards in my list. And so I really need to try and win fast and early. Leverage that 10 credits that I start with. So let's put 12 agendas, almost all of them one-pointers, so that I have to score as many things as possible as slowly as possible to give the runner as much as the chance to win as they can. I do agree with you, Orbital. Like, uh, there were good Whalen decks at the time. There were good Grindle decks at the time. This was the mistake of I'm not winning every game early, so mm-hmm. I should make my late game better. Not no, I should lean more into the early game win, mm-hmm. which is actually the correct lesson for these decks. For sure, and I, I think one of the positive reinforcements you might have got is shoring up your late game may have won you a couple of games here and there. But I'm saying overall, if this deck was just made faster, you win more games overall, right? Oh, I agree. Yeah. (laughs) That's the classic trap of deck building, right? A a card wins you a game, so you think it's good. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes a card Mm -hmm. wins you a game because it is good. But sometimes a card wins you a game because you're just on a weird spot. I think the card that really stands out to me looking at this, the pull between the fast and the slow and... I'm genuinely asking this question. This card stands out to me. I don't know if this card was good at the time or if this card was just a card that you were trying out or I don't know. I've never played the card. I've never seen it played. Witness tampering. I was hovering as you were describing this. I'm like, I bet this is the card. Yeah. For those in the audience who are similarly not familiar with witness tampering, this is an operation. It costs four. It is a double. So it also costs you two clicks. And it says that you can remove up to two bad publicity. That's kind of short up, like I start off with this one bad publicity, I probably gain some more bad publicity, either just from my agendas, which get me money or resing my grims. But the issue is it costs you, I mean, four credits is basically a billion credits. And it also costs you two clicks. 
and it just kind of shores you up a little bit for the long game. But if you're not winning the long game anyway, then this feels like this could just be cards that make you go faster. I very much agree. I think at the time I was really worried about runners being able to efficiently break curtain walls. So I was like, I got to make this curtain wall worth it. Let's be ready to remove my bad pub if games get into a bad spot so that the runner has to spend real money. I think another thing in 2014, I was going to the local board game store. We would be lucky if we got 10 for a GNK kind of thing. Uh, I was very much not in that runner the way I am now. I knew a lot less and read a lot less. So I would look at something like witness tampering and said, bad pub is bad. Let's get rid of it. And this is a tool that helps me manage my bad pub. Not thinking about the fact that this basically is eating up a whole turn to not really change the board state. And that if you're trying to play a rush deck, that's a pretty cardinal sin for a card. Unironically, green beans. Would have just been better in the slot. Green beans pretty decent. Well, I look at this list and all I'm like, oh, I would cut this agenda. I would cut this card. There's a lot of things that could have been different. The one thing I will say, Jackson was out. I stand by taking anonymous tip over Jackson here. Um, anonymous tip but, is faster, right? If yeah, all you I need actually, to do is draw the cards, anonymous tip is fast. I 100% agree if if your agenda suite wasn't 12 agendas. <laughs> like, <laughs> one of the things that I wanted to point out was... <laughs> What back in 2014 was efficiently breaking curtain wall? I mean, like, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand the concern here. Like, well, hold on, hold on. I, I've got this. I've got this. I think a lot of things efficiently break curtain wall if you install it in a zoom outside of it. That's we got it in one. No, I mean the other thing is I remember scoring geothermal frackings and clicking them for. So geothermal fracking was a four-two that said place two agenda counters on this when you score it. Click gain seven and take a bad pub. So I remember scoring them and going, I need more money. Click, take a bad pub and gain seven. Click, take a bad pub and gain seven. Scoring hostile takeovers. I have to imagine I was hitting six to 10 bad pub. And then at that point, Corroder does start breaking up curtain wall pretty efficiently. Absolutely wild. Yeah, absolutely wild. The amount of bad pub that you could get in this deck. And you didn't really get paid for it right with the outfit at least you actually get paid with all of the bad pub grandel pays you once and it only pays you five credits yeah i've built grandel lists for eternal and gone yeah this is just worse than any outfit list you could have but i have such an attachment to grindel power unleashed it's one of those decks i just love and maybe not this specific version of it but a version of grindel (laughs) so this ID back in the day might have been correct at 10 influence due to how the early game worked. But if it was printed today, it would be the full 15 or mm-hmm. it would even be 17 because yeah, the extra five credits for the bad pub is not really that good in modern Netrunner. But going back into it, I do want to point out another thing about this deck. Because this is what we kind of do on Deck and Bamboozled, yep. is we talk about how you can make the deck better and the mistakes that you made, right? Yeah, yeah. Time first guide to Netrunner, Kenny's podcast. He talks about how people, if they were to go back, even a mediocre player goes back from the knowledge they have now in Netrunner to that time, they would be able to crush it and just win shitloads of games, win tournaments, win regionals, whatever. I'm looking at your deck here and I'm like, there is 21 ice in this deck. Yeah. Not only not only did you dilute stuff by trying to look at the late game, 
witness tampering and some of this big ice and stuff like that. I'm looking at this and I'm like, dude, you could have gotten away with 16 ice, especially Mm -hmm. since you have a non-tip in here. And what you could have done is just put in a shitload more econ, maybe an extra sea source, definitely another scorched earth. And you could have had this plan where you were playing way more econ and you were making the sea source so oppressive that they had just had to let you score agendas. The anonymous tip helps you get the multiple sea sources in hand that yeah. you need to win. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. And uh, yeah. like I'm looking at this wraparound could have become more anon tips or a Jackson. Azuma yeah. could have become the other Z source. It's yeah. interesting to like look back with your knowledge now how this deck might have been better and actually kind of stormed the meta a little bit. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things because I was pretty green or I, I remember being, I need to double ice HQ for account siphon as fast as possible. And that being my biggest concern in the world. That's part of why I was at 21 ice in this list, but looking at it again now, you know what, just make more money, just keep printing it. You're the only corp that can play restructure turn one, click one. And that's a huge deal. Making five credits was a big, big deal back in 2014 for a single click. So I think this list is a great example of you need to lean into what your idea is good at, lean into your game plan. And if you find that you're failing, try leaning in harder before you try going back the other way. Yeah, one thing that I do really like in this list, and honestly, it's an ice that looking at it now, I'm realizing it's gone and I miss it, Chimera. The fact that you have this extra five credits just means that Chimera is an ice that is so difficult to break for so long, and you get to res it an extra two and a half times for free. Yeah, yeah. I fucking love that ice. For, for those of you who don't have your Genesis cycle niche cards memorized, Chimera was a mythic two-cost ice with strength zero. When you res Chimera, choose Sentry, Codegate, or Barrier. Chimera gains that subtype until derezzed. When a turn ends, derez Chimera. And it has a single subroutine that was end the run. So it basically says if you don't have an inside job, you have to have all three types of breakers as long as I have two credits Yeah. on top of whatever I need to do next. It's one of those ice where I think we'd see playing a lot of modern rush decks still because it supports the rush game plan so well. Oh, maybe this could have been a 3x instead of having two curtain walls. Maybe yeah. not the right choice long term, but you know, it's sort of... Uh, but what's the long term? <laughs> yeah. I was very amused when I went back and looked at this list. And also when I looked back at the comments... And all of us flailing around in the entirely wrong direction for ways to improve this list. Yeah, that is fun. Not going to call out the specific players involved in that discussion, but there are definitely some ideas that uh, are stated, I would say. Cool. So fun to run through really early Netrunner, 2014 era Netrunner. Before I was even playing the game, this was y'all were light years ahead of me because I didn't even know Netrunner existed. Yeah, that is Deccan Bamboozled for this week. Let's move from talking about specific decks to move back to talking about specific cards. Josh, I think it is time for one of our time-honored segments. Absolutely, and this is probably going to take up the majority of the time on this particular cast. It's going to have so much discussion, and we are really going to get into the nuances of why we are making our particular decision. That's right. It's time for Ban or Nap, and today it is Ban or Nap. Angolo. Ban. 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 All right. Moving on to the next segment. 
The next segment is the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it. As always, although actually for the month of April, this podcast is weekly, this advice is only good for the week in which we release the episode. So if you listen to it before or after, well, if you listen to it before, I don't know how you did that. Please stop. But if you listen to it after, unfortunately, this advice does have an expiration date. The bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it for this week this one comes courtesy of Isengrin. This is T400 Memory Diamond. So this is a card that I kept seeing installed by players of all sorts of different calibers, people that brand new the game, people that have been playing it for years. And every time it was installed, I just go, but why? Why are you installing this? T400 Memory Diamond is a two-to-install piece of hardware that gives you plus one hand size and plus one memory as the runner. Fun fact, it is also a chip, so on top of everything we're about to talk about, you even get the fact that it can get trashed by the new Foxfire. By ScapeNet. Or I think maybe it's ScrapeNet. Oh boy, I shouldn't have spoken, shouldn't have, shouldn't have spoken up with the card name so confidently if I was going to get it, it wrong. Having a card that just gives you MU is very expensive in a lot of ways. It means that you have to draw this card, install it, and then have another program you want to install that would take you over the MU limit. One thing that people will often do is they'll say, here's my list of programs I want to run. Okay, this totals up to 7MU. So I'm going to have my console gets me to 5, and then I need to run two extra sources of MU. And I think often you just don't. You look yeah. at your list of programs and say, oh, you know what? I don't need to have my sneak door beta and a tranquilizer installed at the same time. Or if I do, maybe I don't need my Bugalter installed at that time. And then when they do install and I need my Bugalter, I can just overwrite one of those two pieces. Because the thing with every plus memory card, if you draw it and you have no programs installed, you've drawn a card that's costing you credits and giving you absolutely nothing in return. Although this card, I will say, does give you the plus one hand size, so it's not like you're getting nothing, although two for plus one seems a little bit too expensive. My concern with this card, and this has honestly been the case with almost every plus maximum hand size card that we've had in Netrunner, other than maybe Cybernetics Court or CI, when do you need both of these effects? When do you need both extra MU and extra hand size because otherwise you're paying a premium for the flexibility and the premium is not worth it versus other two cost things that give you extra mu safety first installed <laughs> yeah i think if you're adam you could think about ignoring this advice though i would still say listen to this advice and don't run it one of the things that's interesting in netrunner is that runner hand size is just pretty not valuable there's not a lot of situations as the runner you need to have more than five cards in hand at a time to go and execute your plan so having that extra card in hand it can feel great you can be like oh i can't die to double punitive now but you probably could also not die to double punitive by not spending a click and two credits to install this piece of hardware you could just save those three credits and that effectively becomes six credits that the corp has to beat with their punitive counter strike you gotta have a really good reason for the hand size for this to be worth it or desperately need a large engine of mu and you cannot yeah. find a way to get a different mu source also if you're not drastically reducing your hand size with brain damage rip king hack 
it doesn't seem like your hand size is really going to take too many hits by a common card anymore. So it's even less important to have a higher maximum hand size if you're not using a key card to take a bunch of brain damage to do something awesome. Even if you need the MU, right? Well, Shaper has DZMZ. DZMZ is way better because if you're going to be installing programs, it's going to save you a shitload of money. Even if you're in startup, I'm looking at Anarch and I'm going, Kiko gives you plus two MU already. Plus it already works with Paladin. Technically works with Fencer Fueno, but I'm not sure I've seen that on the table in a long time. Why would you just be playing Kiko? When we come back around to Criminal, when in Criminal have you ever needed more than three okay sometimes four if you install a roseki but then you install your penny shaver and you've got fives you can put a second roseki down so it doesn't matter i think a lot of people are getting baited by i want to have tranquilizer and botulist sitting on pieces of ice but i think the important thing to remember is those are tools for dealing with ice so are your icebreakers and i think mm -hmm. the way i'm looking at botulist and tranquilizer right now is they're mostly early game tools with their ice placement and ice resing once you're in the late game, you've got your three breakers out. You don't really need Botulus and Tranquilizer anymore, provided you've got the money to go and run stuff. Saying maybe there's going to be that one game Botulus is going to be on the toll booth, so that saves me a ton of money. And the Tranquilizer's going to be on the other toll booth, and it's going to be resing at every turn. And I'll still need my three breakers out. Well, probably should still not run this. Learn the lesson from my Grindle deck. Lean into what your deck is good at, not try and shore up what it's bad at. I mean, the cases where you have a botulist in the long game, what it does is saves you money breaking a specific ice. You know what else gives you money to break ice? Money. It could just be money. <laughs> uh. <laughs> what gives Am you I money? Wrong, money. <laughs> Well, no, I, my, thought, my I, issue... I thought that was the perfect way to close the segment, but you've got something oh. else to say. So go ahead yeah, the, and throw the... and cut out my, oh, wait, you can't cut audio. No, we can't. Unfortunately, all of this has to be here. The last thing that I have about, and this is just about plus hand size cards in general, where the point of installing it is the plus hand size rather than other benefits. How often does that actually work for its intended purpose if your intended purpose is damage protection? How often do you actually have seven cards in hand all of the time against a deck that can boom you? How often do you actually keep six cards in hand all the time against a deck that can double punitive you? If you're not using the cards in your hand to get into servers, then I guess you're probably clicking for credits a lot. I, I just don't even see it as a real avenue for damage protection versus something like, I don't know, a sports hopper actually kind of does that. I would say superconducting hub as the kind of court plus hand size card kind of shows how hand size is different for the two sides for corporations hand size means i can hide agendas in hq more easily because i can hold on to non-agenda cards and still hold on to my agendas so that the runner can't get to them superconducting hub also has the bonus where it draws you cards and is a point so it's doing all of these things together which make it a marginal card in some decks then you go and look at T400 Memory Diamond, which has a great reference to an old card, and that is the most valuable thing on that piece of paper. I think that actually is the perfect way to end this segment. What a fucking dunk. That is the end of the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it. We have one last segment to get through for this particular podcast. We're in the closing arguments. As always in the closing argument, 
we give you a hypothetical scenario and we ask you what you would do in that scenario. And we want to remind you that as is canonically established on the podcast, my heart only functions with a certain amount of hot takes. I will die if we don't get enough hot takes on this podcast. So just keep that in mind. Duly noted. Let's say that you have recently become the Netrunner World Champion and you are designing your champion card. Which faction is the card going to be in? What type of card is it going to be? And how broken are you going to try to make it? Boy, so when you said that, I immediately went, it's going to be either Shaper or Hasbiroid. Either way, it's going to be a combo card. And either way, people are going to hate it. I want to either design new FCOM or I want to design new Hyperdriver. That's like my baseline. I want to like get extra clicks and I want to do bogus stuff with them and just say, yeah, you had a game plan, but you weren't ready for mine. I got it. Hyperdriver for HB or FCOM for Shaper. Fantastic. (laughs) We make a fan site that the, you know, the runner gets and then it moves to the score area. They forfeit it or something. I don't know. That sounds fantastic. What is the proper cost for the runner gains three clicks these days? Because apparently it costs three MU and is a program isn't enough. Yeah. The same thing as Hyperdriver, except you can't use it until it goes into your score area like a fan site. And then you can sack it from your Scoria is probably better than actual hyperdriver because most of the hyperdrivers, you install those the turn before and it's not affecting you the whole game. Whereas if it was fansite like, you'd at least have to have that 3MU tied up for a while or some way around the 3MU. That actually sounds like a very interesting way to balance it. Maybe the Shaper decks are like, oh, well, I put this hyperdriver out and Corpse just go, okay, cool. I'm going to build up a really impenetrable board straight. I know that until I score, you can't do anything to me. Your deck is built around this one big combo. Maybe it's running R&D 20 times. So I will just slowly draw and just keep installing ice on R&D and clicking up for credits. And then finally, when I feel like you can't get in, then I will score and you'll just go, oh, well, I guess my deck doesn't do anything. So that could be an interesting dynamic. And maybe I got to start getting those reps in so I can take down the world's belt next year and get this uh, into design. Another thing I'm thinking, and this is just because it's kind of the default big cost that you add to runner cards, APOC, except it installs a hyperdriver, basically. I do love the APOC trigger, and I kind of hope we see, if APOC rotates, I would love to see more cards use that trigger because it's a great... Encore, I think, is really interesting. Only works with Hyperdriver as well, because spending your whole turn to then take another turn is not quite what you want to be doing. But if we can find other good ways, running central, if you do, the court plays with their top card of their deck face up for the rest of the game or something silly like that could be an interesting card. Yeah, I love that. We just need to give it a name that's appropriate. Like any of these cards, we need to give them a name appropriate for the fact that they're going to be hated by many people. We just need to have tap in the name. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, tap is a good call. Yeah. Quick tap. Like, Quick tap, <laughs> yes. Yes. What else could we have? Net tap. Uh, I feel like that actually is already a card, isn't it? It sounds like it is. It's yeah. Good. Shaper Shaper runs three centrals and then plays tap dancing, and then they get 10 clicks. That would be the most humiliating experience in Netrunner. Have I got tap danced on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a shaper player ran my three centrals and then played a card called tap dancing and then i quit netrunner regardless of what the exact trigger is something that encourages combo i mean 
we've talked about on this podcast. Obviously, we've talked about this specific episode, but we've talked about in previous episodes as well. Combo is not inherently bad. Combo is honestly a lot of times very interesting. Having tools to have combo in the game, overall, a very good thing. They just are notoriously difficult to balance and notoriously difficult to get right. But I think it's better that the game takes big swings and sometimes gets things wrong than plays it too safe. I agree. And like, and maybe part of the reason I like combo is I'm not very good at the like, I'm going to play Val and I'm just going to outvalue you click by click for 20 turns and win the game. That is a very hard, very specific skill. Combo says I can move my my skill from one area where maybe it's deficient to an area where I have a little more agency and more learning. And I think combo shifting around the dynamics of what's most important in the game, I think is really a nice way to to shake up Netrunner. And, you know, while it may get me banned from UK or whatever, I don't think we should just play Val versus CTM forever and call Netrunner finish with that matchup. I mean, we also have to keep in mind that there was the argument that came from the UK channel for a long time that CTM is inherently a combo deck. So I don't know if I take their combo opinions that seriously. <laughs> That's a take. <laughs> oh, God. They are like the second highest on the list of countries that listen to this podcast. We're going to lose our entire audience. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. By the end of our run as a podcast, all of Europe will be against us. We already have Germany. Now we have UK. <laughs> our Germany listenership actually went up. That's weird. Did Pencil like accidentally play our episode because we mentioned him? Maybe Pencil is rage listening. He heard Slums cast Duncan on Germany, and that's how he came up with Hive Mind Max. He just hate listened until he came up with the idea and said, I'm going to blow these guys out of the water. Yeah, that's depressingly plausible because it takes my favorite ID in the game, bar none, easily the best identity in all of Netrunner, and it turns it into a deck where you want to install four things, and that is unacceptable. Oh, God. Pencil Shaperified Max. You see the deck list. It has Shaper cards in it. Shaper cards are, I would argue, the most or second most important card in the list. So Arguably more important than the NR cards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if that is the case, then you magnificent bastard. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. <laughs> we have reached the end of the Slums cast. As always, if you liked what you heard on this episode, then please follow us. You can subscribe to the Slums Cast on just about every major podcast distribution network. Somehow, for some reason, that is definitely an error that they have not fixed yet, but you can. If you didn't like what you heard on this episode, please follow us anyway. We could use the followers. Another thing you can do if you are interested is leave us a review. The reviews help us in placement in search algorithms, which honestly, we just want to make sure we show up ahead of podcasts that are not currently active. That's the only reason that we care. If you like what you heard on this podcast and for some reason want to buy merch of this podcast, we have a store on Redbubble. We'll include a link in the show notes. It does notably include a shirt that says that you do not listen to the slums cast, which is important if people have a question about whether or not you listen to the slums cast. So keep that in mind. Special thanks this week. Yusengren, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure. Do you have any shout outs you'd like to give while you're on here? I really do want to shout out Solemn Storm, Ben, who's uh, in my local meta and put in a ton of work to have a, a website that I could go and post pairings on for the single-sided Swiss tournaments. I want to shout out basically everyone who commented in the Stimhack Articles channel for really helping me workshop and clarify a lot of the stuff I've been talking about in single-sided Swiss. Awesome. I think even notably our co-host over here, Pants, did a little bit of math for that, right? 
Yeah, no, I, I do actually owe you a big thank you for helping me figure out how I could show statistically that <laughs> we could cheat and play less Netrunner in a single-sided Swiss than end up playing more Netrunner overall. So. It was really the yeast he could do. We already did baking up Thinklos. Oh, Oh, well, okay. we have to leave it in. So we'll leave it in. Um, on that note, we've reached the end of the episode. So if you have any questions or comments, you can find how to reach us in the show notes. If you have any concerns, then we've done our job. Even if I, like, I've had cases where I've watched Netrunner streams where I don't even agree with some of the commentary that people give. And it's still nice to just, like, have a voice over things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, have something to pay attention, especially when it's JNet. Like, JNet is much less dynamic and, like, visually interesting than real-life Netrunner, where you're, like, the way that this person's installing their ice tilts me. Like... <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, uh. Uh, yeah that's good yeah yeah i'm like yeah i um i don't know if we're i get i mean i know we're recording this but i don't know if this is going to be part of the of the pod itself but um it was very interesting when i was streaming yesterday and having uh andre on mm-hmm. and just being like oh i was like oh i don't know what to do like that it's me say something that's just wrong and having him being like oh but you forgot about this card i'm like oh right yeah. that's a good card how you know <laughs> and then kind of work that into the spiel but i was like it's funny because I think of myself as like, oh, I know all of the cards. Like, I know all the cards yeah. that are relevant and standard. And then I would just be like, what cards in startup work with tags? I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know card pools anymore. Like, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> uh, so I, that was a very interesting yeah. thing to see yesterday was was how how different startup was and was in play than I thought it was going to be. Cool. Maybe okay, not the so... goat streamer and commentator, but the goat memer over here. <laughs> I would not call myself the goat memer. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, we have to we have to consider uh, Kefla. Like, uh, yeah, my own fair. my own meme contributions are overshadowed by the gigantic body of work that Kefla has in inventing drill runner. <laughs> okay, this is fair. This is fair. I had not considered that. You just Andre'd me there. <laughs> <laughs>